welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. So we have a very special episode of First Incision today. Alex Craven is back to run us through some practice scenarios to help us think about how to actually prepare purposely for this exam. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is preparation for the general surgical fellowship exam. And the operational topics we're going to be covering today include identifying your strengths and weaknesses in order to focus on preparing and not ignoring those parts of preparing for the fellowship exam, as well as deliberate practice and some practical exercises to start thinking about different ways of answering questions and different ways of thinking about answering questions for the exam that you can start doing even today. So thank you so much today for coming onto the podcast. We are lucky enough to have Dr. Alex Craven back, who has done a couple of amazing episodes about exam preparation. And also we have a new guest today, Dr. Steve Kunz, who is in my study group and has kindly offered to come a bit into the firing line with me today. So we might start off, given we already know a little bit about Alex, by asking Steve to tell us a bit about himself. So I'm a set four trainee with the Austin Northern Hub with a varied history towards the entry into surgery. I sort of diverted into cardiothoracics for a little while and critical care as well. So while surgery is my first love, I just try and keep a broad interest otherwise. Um, in terms of general surgery, I like things that just meet at the diaphragm. So upper GI is a really strong area for me. Yeah guided in the past due to Alex's strong mentorship as well uh, and outside of outside of work I enjoy rock climbing I enjoy cooking I enjoy looking after my cats and I've got a new three-month-old kitten that will probably feature sometime later in the episode named Nejum. Nejum I like it where's that from? It's the Egyptian, it was the first named cat and it's become the Egyptian word for sweetness or pleasant one, but the fact that it's also the acronym for the New England Journal of Medicine wasn't lost on us. So I, I'm going to hand the reins over to Alex now, who's going to guide this episode a little bit. Um, so over to you. All right. Well, just to be clear, you're still very much in charge, Amanda. I might start <laughs> with you. the usual disclaimer, which is I am an expert only in the exam that I sat um, and no one else's exam. So if anything that comes out of this is helpful, great, use it, plagiarise it, be free to take it anywhere you like. But if it is unhelpful or if you're just listening to this thinking this is not going to be helpful for me, then put it back on the shelf and move on to something else. The first thing I wanted to follow up on, I think last time you and I talked, Amanda, we touched on the idea of this being an exam about uh, your weak links rather than your strong links. Um, and that's my feeling and my opinion from sitting it, but I think it's also the impression I get from the communication from the college. They're not looking for subspecialty professorial knowledge in any area of the exam, but they're looking for people who are well-rounded and can deal safely and effectively with anything that could foreseeably come up and um, in the early career of a young consultant general surgeon. 
So, and I think that's very much about weak links, not having weak areas that are going to let you down in the exam and in real life. And so I think we talked about, well, my experience was figuring this out probably about a month before the exam and thinking, wow, I've got some big holes to fill, but perhaps that that might be more useful for people sitting in the exam if this is how they initially approach the curriculum, deliberately looking for weak links. And so I thought just as an exercise, maybe we could look at where we all see our weak links. We all think about content first and foremost. And so the, the area that I think for me was really intimidating a year out from the exam was breast surgery as a whole discipline. I had not really done a breast term and it, I just felt like whenever I was in front of someone quizzing me, there was always someone sitting behind me that could tell you, you know, they could read that histopathology report and tell you exactly what needed to be happen, happen and down to which choice of chemotherapy. And I was so far behind that. And every time I would suggest an answer, someone would say, oh, no, no, but their nodes are this. Or, and I just felt so behind people. And so that was really my area of weakness. Now, as it turned out, I was very lucky to be placed in an excellent uh, breast unit for the term that I set the exam. And that sort of took care of that. So that's my first advice is if you, if you really think there's an area of weakness, just go and do a term in, in that and, and that'll sort it all out. When I got into the breast, you know, I realized that actually it wasn't breast surgery. The anatomy was actually pretty clearly defined and fairly easy to get your head around. I recently heard an excellent summary in about 15 minutes that covered pretty much everything you'd need to know for the exam. But the issues that I was dealing with was it became clear to me that my oncology was very weak. And suddenly it occurred to me that that wasn't just the breast cancer thing. Actually, all the areas that I thought I was strong in, if I was to be honest with myself, my oncology was weak. And also my knowledge of genetic syndromes was also very weak. And it just so happened that I put it to you that that's probably more prominent in decision-making around breast cancer than it is in other areas. So I thought I'd invite you guys to have a look at, you know, talk to me about the areas of content that you were finding worrying, challenging, concerning. And I guess let's also talk about, you know, what is it about that area and does it translate across other areas of content? Now, I asked you guys to make a list. So have you done your homework? Problem is my list is quite long. <laughs> That's because you're a type A personality and an overachiever, <laughs> as is 90% of the cohort. And you're going to tell me or, you know, if you start with that you're too much of a perfectionist, we're just stopping right here, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> well, given Steve has volunteered to come onto the episode, I will volunteer him to go first, although there's two cats that are, are interrupting his, uh, <laughs> his podcasting at the moment. But uh, once he's recovered from that, take it, take it away. So one of my er biggest areas of weakness is probably head and neck, and in particular anatomy. So touching on what you'd said before, that anatomical deficit that I find is more than just that, trying to work out the variances of your recurrent laryngeal nerves or what structures you expect to find to guide a successful submandibular section. 
building on that, it's probably because at my core, I'm, a, I'm a, like a kinesthetic learner. Like I, I enjoy learning by actually doing things, by appreciating rigorous sulcus during laparoscopic cholecystectomy, by looking for the vagal trunks during a hiatal um, dissection. But if I've not been in that operative scenario or I can't necessarily appreciate the nuances behind why I'd be looking for the origin of the anomenate on a CT chest before a thyroidectomy, then I find it hard for that content to try and stick, which, which then sort of feeds into actually doing op, like practising operative vivas for situations that I haven't been in because not only don't I have the anatomical data to present well, but I feel like I'm on shaky ground with that anatomy to begin with. That exposes a common issue with the exam. So there's a couple of things there. I think you touched on an awareness of your preferred and preferable learning style. Um, I think I would consider myself similar in regards to the strengths in my learning. I was never a list person. I was a, a do and explain it later type person. Um, and, and that's a good thing to know. The area of, yeah, as you say, um, if you can't, and, and head and neck, if you can't learn the anatomy, then then a lot of the operations just become a bit of a, a rote learning exercise rather than a, a true explanation. That's fair enough. And the other thing that you touch on, which is a very common problem in this exam, is explaining operations that you haven't even seen based on a textbook description and doing so in a way that you're trying to suggest to an examiner that you would be competent to do that, even though you might be thinking, I would absolutely call someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I think that it's good. I like that you've seen that, okay, well, this is a problem in head and neck, but not necessarily only head and neck. And I think that what that then allows you to do is as you go through the curriculum, just know the stuff you've seen and done and the stuff that you haven't. How you approach that is up to you. Um, for those of us that learn by doing, um, drawing anatomy can be a really useful tool because it is kind of a doing thing, even if you, even if you're, what you're visually producing is nothing like reality. The process of making your mind put something on paper that matches a true object in life is actually a, a, a practical exercise that can aid with learning. If I can plug the Stanford Heritage Anatomy series of videos with one uh, Richard Schnell, um, who is possibly the most phenomenal anatomist I've ever seen, and this is a guy that starts with a chalkboard and draws the bones in white, starts putting muscles on top, and then and, and with three colours of chalk will beautifully represent uh, an area of anatomy. I encourage you, Steve, to have a look at his head and neck um, drawings. It, it's it's out of this world. So yeah. So but but for, and and look, that's one suggestion for me. But maybe you find find things that work with your learning style and, and do that. If rote learning's not your thing, don't rote learn. Have you got any content areas you want to talk about, Amanda? <laughs> Too many. Uh, I definitely had some anatomy stuff on my list, so head and neck, um, vascular and peripheral limb anatomy, which even though I taught anatomy, I somehow managed to choose to avoid the shifts where I would have to re recover for a lower limb anatomy because I hated it so much and I regret that now. So we'll um, do that. We do that. And so this is another thing that 
I think if you look at the curriculum and you know highlight this as an area of weakness, then just maybe it makes it a bit harder for you to skip across. The other things I had were a couple of topics that I feel like I have a mental block to, which are melanoma and sort of sarcoma, those and those sorts of ones where there's all these new treatments and, you know, there's no real clear just sort of summary anywhere and the thought of having to dive into all of that is just seems overwhelming. What is it about those areas that worries you, this, the melanoma, sarcoma stuff? I think the same thing you were blocked with with breast cancer and that the oncology side of it, that, you know, stuff that we can't see or feel that as surgeons it really is just this sort of theoretical thing, um, I feel will be difficult. And because it's such a cutting edge area, I don't know how I'll talk about about the area. But at the same time, I guess as a general surgical exam, we're not going to need to know the minutiae of all of that. But I know, like you say, as a t- my type A personality, I'll probably end up down a rabbit hole of different <laughs> different treatments. But I think one thing to remember is that the exam is written pretty long way out. And I think we talked about this as well. When they mark someone, there's areas that are clearly right or wrong and there's areas of controversy. And really, if, if an area is still controversial or so new that the clear pathway hasn't been decided, then really the only way to be marked wrong for that is not appreciating that it is controversial. But I think the fact that you guys have identified it this far out means that now you, you can go and address that until you're comfortable. So the next thing about weaknesses that I thought we could talk about is types of questions because there's, there's the content part. And as you guys are probably aware, both working with me from my talk, I'm not a content person. I'm not a knowledge person. So there are many types of questions in the exam and you guys may not have done a lot of practice yet, but are there any sort of questions that intimidate you? You know, in, the, in those practice sessions, What's the sort of question that you're like, oh, I hate it when they ask it like that? No, so like I, I guess the types I'd said were mainly anatomical spots because it sort of leads, again, leads into that first deficiency. Beyond, beyond that, I think my analysis of my weakness is still such that it's, it's, it's all content-based. So the... The ability to work out the difference between a good synthesis question versus a knowledge question is sort of non-existent. I don't, I don't feel like I know what I don't know just yet. So I put it to you that as you go forward, probe for, you know, notice when a question makes you uncomfortable, even though you may know the content. Like I hated list questions. You know, if someone ever asked me the three causes of this or the four options, if anyone ever gives me a number, I'm terrified. Um, and, I mean, yeah, some would argue it's because Alex hates right and wrong questions. He'd rather kind of fudge his way through type questions and, and that's probably reasonable. But oh, I used to hate, you know, that list of, you know, what are the causes of pancreatitis? Oh, can I just tell you the story of the pathogenesis? Because, you know, you know, like, like I, I just get stressed about this. I used to hate trying to remember that stuff. Amanda, do you have any types of questions that? I thought a similar thing to Steve, and that it's pretty early to know exactly. But one thing that I really struggle with, and I struggle with preparing to, for the interview as well, is the sort of question where it gives you this really broad 
question where there's so many different potential pathways depending on so many different factors and trying to figure out how to structure that. And I figured that will probably come up in the long answer questions more than anywhere else. Um, and I found one the other day, I was reviewing large bowel obstruction. It was a case of a patient who presented with a bowel obstru- large bowel obstruction. And the question was, what what is your management of this patient? And then in brackets, it just said operative description, not required. But it depends on so many things and figuring out how to structure that and how to comment on all those different variables in a way that doesn't just make you sound like you're all over the place is something I think I definitely need to practice more. Yeah. And then synthesize all that in 10 to 12 minutes. It's a nightmare. Yeah. You got a strategy for that? I guess I'm starting to try and make assumptions. So rather than saying at each level, if this, if this, if this, then that, and then if this and this and this, if that, trying to be more like assuming this, this is what I would do. And then getting all the way to the end of that pathway. And then assuming this, this is what I do to try to make it a little bit more structured, which is hard because most of the time we approach things as history, exam, bloods, management, you know, so uh, it's just a different way of thinking about it. And I obviously have to practice that skill. All right, and then the last thing I wanted you guys to think about is sort of your own personal strengths, weaknesses, likes, dislikes, and how that might affect, one, you're preparing for the exam and, two, your performance in the exam. So, Steve, you talked about, you know, that kinesthetic learning. That's probably a really useful thing for you. It's probably not a bad idea for you to go and just try and get into any operation you think you might have to explain, knowing that if you go there once, that'll probably be enough to get you over the line. What about weaknesses? What about things that might slow you down and stop you from preparing well? From, from a purely logistic perspective, it's the, it's the dead time between leaving home and getting to work and setting the 45-minute commute both ways in conjunction with either a feeling of fatigue at the beginning or fatigue at the end that makes it easier to just turn the radio on rather than actually use that time productively with podcasts like the one currently being recorded. That that same sort of almost distraction or lack of discipline echoes at home. So it's easy to be distracted by reading up on what's happening with COVID or by going through a patient's bloods or preparing for the following week at work and using that as a justification towards avoiding study. Isn't clinical duties just the best excuse? Yeah, so much so. Flip that around. you got 45 minutes twice a day with no patients. Yeah, no, no cats to, to crawl across your books. Uh, is there anything you'd do with that? Put your headphones in, turn on the voice recorder on your phone. The first 10 times you do it, you'll hate the sound of your own voice. Wanda Stelmack, who all of you know quite well, she's a um, stunningly good surgeon and an excellent leader. And her advice, uh, she she, um, recounted to me her time recording herself answering questions and then listening to her answers and critiquing her own answers. And, you know, I put it to you that that might actually be a good use of your time. And then, you know, you can listen to yourself on the way home and think what you've missed, what you did well, what you could change. I, I did a lot of it and it certainly, it will encourage brevity in your answers. Amanda, what do you think about the way you learn, the way you do things? So in terms of preparation, the 
thing that I thought about that I probably need to get better at is not focusing on the details so much, so trying to get the the bigger picture in. And then from a performance point of view, I'm trying to practice pausing after the questions asked and trying not to talk so fast that my brain doesn't have a chance to catch up with what my mouth is saying, which happens a lot. <laughs> and I must say that the podcast has been really helpful for that because um, you know I do have to think about what I say and I feel like that's being so far a really good practice tool. Start noticing these things when you answer questions, you know, and, and recording them is a good way to do it. That's right. Okay, so that's enough about weakness. So the other thing I think we were going to do was do a little deliberate practice stuff. All right, so deliberate practice. So we talked about this last time. It's the idea of practicing in a way that is deliberately aimed at changing your performance in a specific area. So Amanda, you mentioned pause and think. So what would a deliberate practice exercise for pause and think look like? Well, you told me one that you did, which is you made the people you were studying with make you stop and go one, two, three, four, five before you started talking. So you can do that with a timer. Five seconds is a really long time. But the other thing that you can do is, uh, you know, just when people are answering questions and you think they jumped in too early, stop them, pick it up, get on them early. You know, that immediate feedback thing works pretty well. Let me ask you guys, what do you think you would like to change about the way you instinctively answer questions or the way you're answering questions at the moment? I find that with the questions that are given to me, I'll often go down quite a, like I'll, I'll talk myself into a corner in terms of going down to like infinite detail about one small aspect rather than sort of demonstrating that I've considered the whole or that I've, that I can go from that broad down to narrow type discussion so so the thing i think you're trying to see is you don't want to find yourself down a rabbit hole um, where there's a number of options choose one get in depth before explaining how you get to that option so if we flip that around what would be the positive of that like what 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 do you want to see what do you want to see rather than what you're trying to avoid i want to show the examiner that i've got a structured response that that, that i'm yeah, that I've got all of the drop-down menus present and I'm able to sort of pick one, say, small valve obstruction, soft abdomen, this is what I do, peritonism, this is what I do. Yeah, so it sounds like you, you, you're describing to me that you want those key decision points and those key bits of information that are going to turn a complex situation into a series of simple yes-nos. So two things about that. One is I think that's a very effective way to answer a question um, and is, is to be able to spell out rather than the content and the options from the point of view of the decision-making. The idea that there are decisions to be made rather than options. Does that make sense? Because options is a list, whereas decisions to be made are a clear, you know, it's the difference between how are you going to manage this splenic injury well, my options are A, B, and C. It's the difference between that and, well, it depends on whether the patient is stable. Are there any other injuries? And what's the grade of the splenic injury? 
I think that's sort of a more mature answer. And then you and then you can go through and and with that information, I can choose between immediate splenectomy, conservative management, or embolization. You know, then you then I think that's that sounds like a nice way to answer a lot of questions. Not every question in the exam, but that does sound like that. So so that's probably something we could look at. Even practicing, um, we can even do it now. It might be a bit weird, a bit intimidating, but. Um, this is something that was taught to us in an excellent tutorial. I think it was by Phil Smart who talked about the idea of having you know, a stack of flashcards in your head that are really just decision-making algorithm and you just pull out your difficult duodenal stump algorithm, you pull out your small bowel obstruction algorithm, you pull out your large bowel obstruction algorithm, you pull out your diverticulitis algorithm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you say to the examiner, you know, the key bits of information I'm chasing are this. And I think maybe, Amanda, this might also be another another way to address that whole, holy crap, there's a lot of information here. What's important? What's not? What needs to be my answer? What can sit on the shelf and I can add it to my answer if I've got time? Um, in the, Particularly like in those shorts, for instance. So we played a bit of a game called It Depends. The first part of this game is to get used to the idea that there is no one answer. But the second part of it depends is it depends on what. And usually that's only two or three things. So what I might do is ask you both a few scenarios and you can tell me it depends. And then I'm going to ask you on what. And I just want, you know, key topics. So here's a patient with blunt trauma and a splenic injury on CT. What is your management? The first part the first part of the answer only has one possible right answer. It depends. It depends. Thank you. Good. Good. It depends. On what? Whether the patient is stable or unstable. Absolutely. What are you going to do about the spleen in an unstable patient that's bleeding to death? Take it out. You're going to put it in a bucket, 100%, with you all the way. Yeah, okay. So stable or not stable suddenly goes on our list. Okay, yeah, cool. What else do you want to know from all of that? The grade of the injury. Yeah, grade of injury, grade of splenic injury. Why does that matter? Gives you information about the likelihood of that needing intervention or settling by itself without any intervention. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good, yeah. Does that make sense? Can you see how when I ask you, there's a splenic injury, what are you going to do about it? The mature answer will be, look, there's only a couple of key bits of information I need here to make that decision. And in the exam, the examiners are waiting for those key bits of information. You can just give them the stuff you know they're going to want and then move on. You are performing a lab collie and find a unexpected stone in the common bile duct. What would you do about it? Yeah, so the factors that my approach to cholidocal advice, to unexpected cholidocal advice, uh, involves the physiological state of the patient, the difficult, how difficult the dissection of callos has been, how large the cystic duct itself is, and the the facilities that my institution has available. And that's pretty much it. So, so in in a situation where we have easy access to something like ERCP, 
in a patient that may have a narrow cystic duct that's not amenable to cholidocoscopy, then in that situation, trying to get it down from below uh, rather than through a transistic expiration is valid. Whereas in a situation where a patient may be physiologically or anatomically unfit for ERCP, like the previous rule on Y-gastric bypass, then in that situation, I'm inclined towards a formal transistic expiration. Yeah, that's per- that, and that's a perfectly valid answer to have. I don't think transistic exploration is on the do's in the curriculum. It wasn't when I set the exam, so that's fine. Really, it's only two or three things that are going to make that decision. You know, morphology suitable, ERC possible, not possible, duct blocked, not blocked. You know, you've got three binary answers. But if you've got a few key things that help you make your decision, then you're going to make a safe decision. A patient comes to see you with an inguinal hernia. What are you going to do about it? It depends on whether the patient's symptomatic or asymptomatic. Beautiful. Agreed. The size of the hernia? Does it? I guess you'd be more inclined to repair a large inguinoscrotal than a small asymptomatic hernia? Fair enough. Yep. Whether or not the patient has had previous surgery as well as their body habitus. Good, because I think you're thinking about lap versus open there, aren't you? Yeah, cool. Yep. You know, are they fit for surgery? Maybe I don't know. But yeah, I agree. Like, but what you've, you know, the key that you've touched on there is pretty much symptomatic or not. There's nothing else that's going to change your mind about. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like that. You know, you could talk about taking a history and how long it's been there and is it reducible or not and has it ever got incarcerated and ever had a small bowel obstruction? Blah, 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 blah. You can spend your whole life talking about this inguinal hernia or you can just say, look, is this causing you trouble? Is it not causing trouble? And what do we know about symptomatic inguinal hernias? They get worse. They cause trouble. They cause problems. So we're going to fix it. What do we know about asymptomatic inguinal hernias? You know, we've got a pretty big study that told us that we could wait until the patient was symptomatic. Perforated duodenal ulcer. You've got a stable patient with gas under the diaphragm. What do you do? In a stable patient, you could make the argument for conservative treatment. So nasogastric tube, IV PPI, IV antibiotics, and then to observe them. The markers that would indicate that this has failed and they require an upgrade in their treatment would be failure to progress, the progression of their clinical signs, indicating ongoing soiling. That's pretty much it. Yeah, so, so, the, so when I say to you, you know, what are you going to do about this stable patient with 50, you, you rightly figured out that this was a question about conservative management of perforated peptic ulcer disease. Do you have criteria for managing perforated peptic ulcer disease? Not off the top of my head. So now you have an objective when you're attacking this topic. And so that's the other, the other reason why I like these sort of exercises where you go through a lot of content really quickly aiming to just frame little questions because then you can start mapping out for yourself some goal-derived study objectives rather than let's cover peptic ulcer disease. You can walk in there with let's find an algorithm for management of peptic ulcer disease or let's go in there and find an algorithm for workup of peptic ulcer disease or let's go in there and find a way to quickly explain the pathophysiology of peptic ulcer disease. 
And then let's close the book and go and work on something else. And you can do that with all of your topics. And I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like more worthwhile study than open the chapter on, you know, peptic ulcer disease in some pathology textbook and then move on to eight operations for it in some surgical technique book, none of which you've performed before and you don't really know which one to choose when. That, that sounds like hard work to me. But go and find out what people think are good ways to manage peptic ulcer disease and come up with my own plan. That seems like worthwhile study for me. And that actually seems like something that might help me going forward in my career. And with that unbelievable advice and really practical ways of thinking about preparing for the exam, that is where we left this episode. Alex is going to give us a little summary about what he really wanted us to get out of this exercise. Um, And I'm sure that you will all be just as grateful as I am for his expertise, as well as join me in thanking Steve Kunz for coming into the firing line with me today, as well as for being such an amazing study buddy and helping me get ready for this exam. At the end of the day, I think the idea I was trying to get across from all of this was by looking at our weaknesses in the areas of content and then looking at what is it about that area of the content that is a weakness for me and then just screening the rest of the content, the rest of the syllabus to make sure that that doesn't apply in other areas is probably a good way to prioritise study. And it may be different from different members of your group. And in that case, as we talked about, Steve, if you deliberately choose those areas that are a weakness to you and use them as a teaching topic where you teach the rest of your group something they probably already know, that is probably a good, a good an, an option for covering this. But certainly, if nothing else, go through that syllabus, identify your weaknesses and screen the rest of the syllabus with every weakness and just get them down and prioritise those. Because there'll be much, that's what's going to trouble you in the exam, not, not lack of in-depth knowledge about anything. The other thing was the weaknesses in technique. You know, identify the types of questions that intimidate you and practice them more often than the types of questions that you like. And it's a big trap in study groups. We love doing operative descriptions in our study group. We loved it. We loved it so much that we would practice that to the you know, exclusion of everything else. Another, and then think about your own personal strengths and weaknesses and apply them in deciding how you're going to go about doing it. In regards to the deliberate practice exercises, I think look for criticism. And often you get content criticism rather than anything else. You need to know more about this. You need to explain that better blah, blah, blah. But occasionally you will get technique criticism from the people you're talking to, from the surgeons that you're talking to. And when you get that, hold on to it and file it away. You really should talk more as if you're in the driver's seat. You really need to summarize the situation better. You should stop and think about your answer more, whatever it might be. Use that and then go and take that develop an exercise for yourself and train you out of, train yourself out of whatever habit was impairing your performance. 
it depends was one we worked on being in the driver's seat i think is one early on i got a lot of criticism about giving this wishy-washy idea of the options rather than putting myself in the position of the decision maker and making choices and decisions and when it's done well it sounds it sounds like you're already out of the other side of the exam and i think that's why it's such a popular technique so that might be another one that you can practice a month to do so is is talk just fire a lot of questions at each other and just keep hammering being in the driver's seat and you just get so used to it, it suddenly becomes automatic and also hit the biggest range of question types and content types you can the other exercise that as a deliberate practice is we talked about the shorts and trying to figure out what we're going to do how are we going to answer such a large question and one of again another tip for wonder was we had exercises where we just sit down and just plan the answer that's all give yourself one minute look at the question plan your answer in dot points i'm going to cover this i'm going to cover this i'm going to cover this done move on next question swap notes figure out who structured the answer better than you who structured the answer worse than you stuff that you forgot to put in stuff that you didn't you can get through a huge range of content doing that but also when you sit down for that short and you hit that short that you haven't covered before and you're like whoa there's a lot in this then you're automatically very good at planning that answer so it's really a technique it's a great way to cover heaps of content but it's a really good technique and then when you've done all this you'll have a list of stuff that was hard to practice because you didn't have the content and then you have a way to go and chase content so we talked about you know chasing down specific information you know knowing what answers you need to find rather than what content you need to cover and for most of us that's a, a better way to approach the enormous amount of reading is to know specifically what do i need to find from this rather than let's go and memorize this chapter it's time to close up thanks for listening to first incision if you have any comments or feedback send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!